0: There are two innate understandings that God has placed in the heart of every individual that he has created. The first understanding is a basic understanding that that God exists. A child doesn't grow up believing in God simply because his parents told him that there is a God, but rather they believe because God has created them to be hardwired to know that God exists. Uh, The second understanding is this, is that uh, not only is there a God, but we also know that there is a distinction between what is right and what is wrong, even a, a basic understanding. Uh, We know this by Romans chapter 2. It tells us that even if we don't have the Bible, even if we don't have the law and the Ten Commandments, we still have a general sense of what is right and wrong because God has placed a conscience within us. The Bible says that he has written the law of God on our hearts. Therefore, when we do what is right, uh, our conscience confirms us. When we do what is wrong, it condemns us. And so God has given all people these two general Understandings. Now, with that, we understand that it's possible to suppress those understandings. People do it every day. Uh, There are some, uh, let's say for an example, uh, an atheist. An atheist isn't born an atheist. He he grows to become an atheist. He actually has to work at it according to Romans chapter 1. That is that the Bible says that he suppresses the truth of God, that is the truth to know about God, in all unrighteousness. In other words, he looks around, he knows there's evidence that God exists, but in his sin, he keeps saying, no, there's not, no, there's not, no, there's not, until he finally believes it. Now, on the other hand, the same would be true for our conscience— that we can come to the point that we actually sear our conscience by continuing to sin. And even though our conscience is telling us, no, no, this is wrong, wrong, if you keep pressing far enough, your conscience can be seared to the point that it is rendered helpless. It's, it's rendered, to, it's no good to you anymore whatsoever. But even though these things can happen and do happen all of the time, the scripture tells us uh, very clearly that, that though these things, uh, people will do these things, they these things exist exists nonetheless in other words every person still has an understanding that there is a God every person has an understanding between what is right and wrong now when you put these two things together when you put these two things add them up there okay there is a general understanding that God exists and at the same time I know that I have sinned against God my conscience tells me that I have it equals a very important question in fact a universal question People, people ask this question, no matter where they're from, what time they live, or from what culture they are, somewhere within their lives, they begin to ask the question, how can I be made right before God? How can I be made right before God? And, and that's what every culture has asked, and not only have they asked it, they've tried to answer that question. For example, the Mayans, the ancient Mayans, have answered that question by saying the way to be made right before God is to sacrifice your children to their deities, For the Greeks and for the Romans, they believe that the way to become right before God is to build a lavish temple and take part in temple prostitution. It's strange to think that you can take part in something perverse and think that it's going to make you right before a holy God. Uh, So no matter what, no matter how it looks... What's ultimately happened is mankind has always tried to make themselves right before God by either being very religious and taking part in religious practices and or being a good person. Their own goodness would ultimately make them right before God. Now, this is a universal problem. It's a universal question. It's a universal problem because everyone's trying to make themselves in some way right before God. And this is precisely the question, actually, that Paul addresses here in these two verses. He not only addresses it, he actually answers this question for us in just two verses, verses 15 and 16. And Paul answers them, this question, by demonstrating two things. First, he demonstrates a presumption that falls short And then he presents a faith that saves. We're going to look at both of these before we partake in the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. First of all, a presumption that falls short. Notice, if you will, in verse 15, he writes, "For For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, when I read that, I don't know about you, but that sounds rough. It sounds, in fact, that Paul is some big, giant, arrogant racist. It sounds as though he's saying, hey, what makes me good and makes you not good is the fact that I was born Jewish. And if you're not born Jewish like me, you're born a sinner, which means you're not right before God, but I am because of my Jewishness. That's what it sounds like in the English, but the truth is it's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying just the opposite of that. It was the false teachers who had infiltrated the church who began to suggest to them that, 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 that God, yes, had, had made a sacrifice and had worked on their behalf to try to save them, but it wasn't enough. I, I, instead, it, they had to work. They had to work at it as well to make themselves right before God. So Paul doesn't agree with that at all. But what he does affirm is that there were some benefits and a blessing by being born a Jew. If you go to the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, Paul, after saying that a person is saved by grace through faith alone, and that's it, when he's talking about this whole idea and that there's no distinction between a Greek and a Jew, he says in chapter 3, he says, but is there any benefit in being a Jew? And he says, yes, in many ways. Then he goes on and he begins to list those ways. Remember in the Old Testament that God had a plan, a redemptive plan for mankind. And he began it with this man by the name of Abraham. Do you remember this? What was Abraham doing when he chose him out of all the people of the world? He was worshiping false gods in a pagan land. It wasn't like he was sitting there going, you know, I'm a good person. I don't understand these people. I love God. None of that. God revealed himself at his own grace and and elected him and called him and, and made him his own person or his special person, not only he, but all the Jewish people as well. And he blessed them and gave them blessings that none of the other world enjoyed. He revealed himself in a way to them that was unique, that nobody else experienced. He revealed his word to them and his law to them that nobody else had access to. And so these were the benefits that Paul is talking about here. But with all of these benefits, Paul is saying, but it still didn't save. Now, we understand that God gave all these blessings to the Jewish people, not to stop with them, but to go through them, right? And the Bible says that I'll make you, uh, I'll bless you so that, so that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, but the Jewish people kept losing sight of this. They had made two primary mistakes. Two of the primary mistakes was this, is number one, is instead of being humbled by God choosing them as his covenant people, instead they became arrogant, believing that the reason that God chose them is because there was something inherently good about them that would make God want them and to choose them. And, the, and because, they were, because God chose them, they were therefore somehow more righteous or good than everybody else. The other mistake that they made is that God not only chose them because they were internally good, inherently good, but because they could be right before God by doing their many acts of service, their, their works of the law. So they, they believed they were right before God because of who they were and because of what they did. And Paul is suggesting that this is a sinful pres- presumption of every man. Of every man, woman, and child, the reason they believe or how they believe that they're going to be right and accepted by God is because they are good internally, ultimately good, and or because they can do enough good things that at the end of their life that their goodness is going to outweigh their sin. And he says that's a sin, a dangerous sin, a presumption. But this was the very mindset amongst the Jews that that, that God kept sending prophets to and telling the people, you're wrong. This thinking is completely wrong. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, this is what he rebukes the religious leaders about. In Matthew chapter 3, we, we read this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to be baptized. Now, no, remember, who's he talking about? He's talking about the religious elite, the Jewish elite. Nobody did the law better than the Sadducees and, and, and the Pharisees. But he says this to them. He says, you brood of vipers He warned you to flee the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now notice this, and do not presume. There's that sin of presumption. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you, he says, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. He says, here's a mistake you guys are making. You think because you were Jewish that you are some, for some reason you now have right standing before God because you follow all the laws. You now have right standing before God. He goes, that's a sin of presumption. Don't presume that you're in this bloodline that that makes you right before God. He says, you know what God could have easily done? He could have chosen anybody to be his children. He could have chosen the rocks to be his children. And what would the rocks have done to deserve God's goodness? Nothing at all. Just like the Jewish people, they weren't deserving of God's goodness at all. And so this is what we find. And and, and so Paul is calling against this. He's telling them, he says, guys, anybody, you, me, anybody who thinks for a moment, just listen to me carefully. If you think at all in any way, shape, or form, that there is something within you that God desires because of its goodness or because you think that somehow if you were to die and go to heaven that God would say, hey, thumbs up because your life is littered with goodness. He says this is a sinful, this is a sinful thinking of presumption and it leads ultimately to destruction. Now, we sit back and we look at that and we say, well, that's rough and it is rough, but you don't have to go to, to you don't have to, be, uh, to have to be Jewish to fall into the same sinful inclination. This presumption is not reserved for first century Jews, but for all people of all time. One of the ways that I see this most clearly active or illustrated is usually at funerals. Now, funerals are sad to me. I mean, they—they they are sad. Some somebody's loved one has passed. They've—they've they've passed along and they've died, and that's a hard thing. And, and I understand. We always have somebody really spiritual amongst us, and like, not my funeral. My funeral is going to be a rejoicing. And knowing you, yes, it probably will be a rejoicing for many people left behind. But, 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 it, it, and, and I get what they're saying. Uh, what, what they're saying is, hey, listen, we want to rejoice because I'm with Jesus, and that is, we we mourn, but as those who have hope, right? We know that they're with Jesus, but there's still a sadness that we're never gonna see this person again, at least in this world. So there's a sadness there. But what makes it far more sad is oftentimes what is said by the priest or the pastor or somebody who is doing a eulogy about the person who has passed away. One of their jobs, and this is a good thing, is they're supposed to try to seek comfort for those who are there, the family members and friends. This is a good thing. But it depends on how you do that. In other words, oftentimes they'll get up and they'll say, Hey, listen, we just want to first of all let you know that Baba is okay. He's okay where he is. And the reason we know he's okay now is because when he was here, he was okay. Here's how I know he was a member of a Baptist church, he was a Lutheran, he was a devout Catholic. He did all of these things right. Man, he was so giving. He'd give the shirt off his back. In fact, one time he was on episodes of Cops because they thought he was a crick because he had no shirt on, right? And so they're looking at him and and they're like he was just that kind of a giving guy and he was always doing these things. Now listen, if the pastor is saying those things, because what he wants to do is he wants to demonstrate that out of a relationship with Jesus Christ, he lived this giving life that served for God, for the glory of God, then I'm all about that. If that's fruit of him coming to faith in Jesus Christ, then I rejoice in that. But if this is the means by which this man believes he was born again, that he was a member of a church, that he was baptized, that he did good things, that he was a good father, that he was a good, that he was a good husband, then this, this funeral has just gotten much sadder. It, it's not only that this man has passed and his life is gone, but if his faith was placed on these things, he is no longer in heaven, he is in eternal judgment. And so when we look at this, we begin to think, and the sad part is, is it actually works for some in the congregation. For some that actually believe that you can be made right before God by your own actions, they're comforted. But a true believer in Jesus Christ begins to mourn and begins to weep because they're like, this isn't just about a physical death. This is about an eternal death. And they begin to sorrow because they understand the only way to be right before God is not by our own works and our own goodness. That is not a way. It never ultimately works. And so this is what we find within the scripture, and this is what he's calling us out at. In fact, in, in, later in that verse in chapter, uh, in chapter 16, he will ultimately say, and or, he says, "In order to be justified," he says, "Not nobody will be justified by works of the law, because the works of the law, none, one, no one will be justified." He just keeps emphasizing that idea. Now he transitions from one idea to this, to this concept of, in the beginning, the presumption that falls short to now the faith that saves. Now, notice what he says in verse in the next verse. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. That's huge. He says, we, the Jewish people, know, that is knowing by experience, that no person can be justified by the works of the law. Now, we need to, we need to unpack that word justified. Because we use it as believers all the time. We hear it, we say it, we just throw it out. And a lot of times we don't even know what it means. It was like a guy in my church growing up as a kid would always say, man, we need to get under the spout where the glory falls out, amen? And everybody would be like, amen. To this day, I still don't know what that means. Just don't know what that means. And so here we're talking about justification. We better understand what justification means. It's a legal term that was used in a courtroom and it expresses freedom from guilt in condemnation. Freedom from guilt and condemnation. So Paul's whole point is that he knew from experience that no person can be justified. That is made right. That is to be free from guilt and condemnation before God based on anything they ultimately attempt to do in order to be able to cleanse themselves and to justify themselves. Uh, and you say, well, how does he know? Because he tried. Because he tried. When you look at the book of Philippians, this is interesting. I don't think I understood it as well as I understand it now by studying Galatians. But in Philippians chapter 3, he actually talked about this very subject. He was actually addressing and he was warning the people that there was a group of Judaizers that had snuck inside of the church and they were again saying that the sacrifice that Jesus made wasn't sufficient. It was good, but it's not going to get you to heaven You've got it. Not only do you have to trust in Jesus' work, but you have to trust in your own work. There's things that you have to do. Same thing that he was fighting against with the Galatian people. But this is what Paul said to those Philippians. He said, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Do you see this? This is that same sin of presumption. Don't you think or feel confident for a moment that you're okay with God because you're an okay guy. Then he goes on and he explains why that is. He says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, you think your Christian lineage, the fact that you grew up with a bunch of Baptists and your great grandpa was, I actually had a gentleman tell me, this is a family member, when I was sharing the gospel with them, I said, I said, brother, I said, how do you know that you have eternal life? How do you know that God will accept you? This was the answer. No joke. Said, my, my father helped build a church up north, and they gave so much money that the stained glass window was in their name, and their name is on that stained glass window to this day. Can you believe that that's an answer? But yet, people actually believe that their spiritual legacy is something that ultimately is going to be made right with God. I'll I'll talk with people even at funerals all the time, and they want to show the Bible of the person. Hey, here's the Bible that they (laughs) had. Blow all the dust off. Here's the Bible that they had, and look, oh, they wrote some notes in here. Look, they said God is good. They've got to be good with God, right? They've got to be good with God. And that was my dad, so therefore, somehow, I'm good with him. It's not as though people say this, but it's what they think. It's like a husband and wife where uh, where a husband might be a believer or the wife might be a believer and they're thinking, hey, that's okay. They're good with God and I'm with them. So therefore, we're gonna be all right. It's not the way that it works. And so Paul just sits back and he says, hey, look, you think, if you think, if you presume that you're good enough, or you have the background. Mine was much greater. Then he goes on, and he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to, and as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, here's what he's doing. He's saying, I was as Jewish as Jewish can be, and I was a part of the covenant family of God, and it still wasn't enough. So whatever you think, whatever heritage, Baptist, uh, being baptized, whatever it is, whatever you think is gonna make you right with God, he says, it won't because this didn't make me right before God. Then he goes on and he says, not only your spiritual heritage, but he says, what about the works that you're doing? that do you think is ultimately gonna please God and make you acceptable? Well, he begins to list his own. He says, as to the law of Pharisee, which he goes, you think you know the Bible? He goes, I know it better than you. I memorized the first five books of the Bible, knew it before, forward or backwards. And he goes, you, you, you think that you have great zeal? You think you're serious and sincere in your faith? He goes, I was a persecutor of the church. People disagreed with me. I'd throw him in prison and I'd put him to death. That's how, how zealous I was. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What he was saying is, I just followed the, 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 the concrete structure of the law to perfection. In other words, he wasn't talking about his heart. Certainly, he was sinful with his heart, but he never ate something that he wasn't supposed to eat. He always washed his hands meticulously before he ate. He followed those aspects of the law. Therefore, he was blameless. His argument, again, is this, is that if anyone could have been saved through their religious heritage or through the following of the law, it was him because nobody did it better than him. Nobody. You know, it's interesting to me because he turns around and then he says, look, if you can't do it, if this is just some false sinful presumption that you can somehow be good enough to be accepted, and that is only going to lead to judgment, then what leads to life? Well, he answers that in such a short little sentence. Do you see that? He says, but through faith in Christ Jesus. But through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me just kind of explain what that means. By faith, it doesn't mean just intellectual assent. That is that you just believe that Jesus came and he was born of a virgin, that you believe the facts. In the book of James, it says the Bible teaches us that even the demons believe these things, but we know that they're not born again. They fail to fear God. And so how do we we parse this out? Faith is a trusting in. It's basically saying not that you just trust in the person, but you trust the person in the work of that person. It's saying that I trust my whole life and all my eternity and my acceptance before God, not based on what I do, but on the completed work of Jesus Christ. That he lived a life that I could not live in utter perfection. He was, he was tempted in every way, yet sinned not. And then he died and he paid a sacrifice and a debt for me that I myself could not pay. Lived a life I could not pay, paid a debt that I could not pay. While he was on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on him. He was taken on that cross. He was placed in a tomb. And on the third day he rose again, which gives me and you hope. Why? Because raising on the third day demonstrated that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sins. And so what he says is, hey, guess what? All that working, all the striving, all the desire to do all these things fall short, leave a person in sin, actually even condemns them, but the only thing that will do it, to the universal question is this, is faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. You know, I always find it interesting when somebody says that Christianity is no different than any other religion. When they say that, it's clear to me that they know nothing about Christianity. Every religion in the world depends on working as hard as you can to hopefully justify oneself before God. I say hopefully because there is no confidence. It's why those men flew those jets into the World Trade Center because they knew that they could not be enough before their idea of God. Therefore, their only hope was the promise that if they martyred themselves, then that would do it for them. There was no security, there can be no security to believe that we can be good enough to be able to accept him. Christianity, on the other hand, is coming to a humbling reality that you can't, the humbling reality that you can't be good enough and trusting confidently that Jesus Christ did the work for you to leave you justified before God. So we talked a lot about theology and some of you are nodding your heads yes, and some of you are going, is this almost over? I don't understand a word that's coming out of your mouth. So as always, we'll, we'll try to make sure that we're hitting both intellectual sides and the people that need pictures of things. So let me give you a little bit of a picture let's say just for a moment, and of course, just let me preface this with any illustration, there's going to be things that are not theologically true, okay? It doesn't work exactly this way, but let me give this to you. Imagine there's a courtroom, and your pastor is on trial. Yes, they finally caught up to me, all right? And I'm on trial, and the prosecutor is Satan, and he has got a mountain, I mean a mountain of evidence against me, and he has got, do you remember those old sheets of paper that had this little perforated edge that would go through the printer and it would spit out and you'd sit there and you'd have to, I don't know who came up with this, but you'd have to rip them all apart. Then you'd try to rip the sides off. Do you remember that? Young people are like, D- dude, you're so old. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, just, they had that. Okay. And so what they did is on this sheet of paper is, is single space in little teeny font, little teeny font, all the accusations and all the evidence against me. Every sin, every wicked thought, every wicked action, every lack of faith that I presented in my, entire, in my entire life was single space listed on this sheet of paper. And this sheet of paper went for miles. In fact, it went around the world 10 times. Before you judge me, yours might be even longer, okay? So, so, so there we are, and it goes around 10 times. And this is the evidence, and it literally takes generations for the prosecution to finally rest. It takes this long in the courtroom just to be able to present accurately how guilty I am of sinning against a holy God. And every single one of them comes with the penalty of death. Not not the consummation of all of it. Every one of them. Has, has the legal ramifications of death because it was made towards God. And then imagine at that moment, after all of these decades of all of this evidence, everybody in the courtroom knows that I'm guilty. And I get up to you saying, say, you know what? I know that I, was, I I'm, wasn't a perfect man. But, but I was sincere. And I was a good man. And I tried to do my very best. And I went to church. And, and, and I, I tried to be a good husband and a good father and a good businessman. I tried to love my neighbors. Uh, then I s- sat down. That was it. There would be complete silence in the courts. Everybody would be sitting there and they'd be looking and they would say, bro, that's just not going to cut it. Everybody knows by everything around you, there's no way that what you just said is going to atone for what you have ultimately done. Everybody's going to be clear on that. One author said it would be like this. It would be like you being on trial for murder, being found guilty in your only defenses, you never got a parking ticket. Makes no sense. That's how ridiculous it is for you and I to think one day we'll stand before the judgment, the, the judgment seat of God and say, the reason you need to accept me is because I was a good person. And the evidence is going to be so over- overwhelming, people are going to know, bro, that's not going to atone for it. In fact, there's no way for that to be able to atone for it. But if you and I placed our faith in Christ, the scenario would be far different than that, would it not? if you and i were 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 to do this and this is where it kind of falls apart because we won't be at the judgment seat of Christ so so just understand just follow the illustration after all the evidence is presented clearly showing that i am guilty instead of me speaking and trying to defend myself i have jesus my advocate speak on my behalf and he asks god the father if he can approach the bench and the and, and the father very lovingly tells him yes come and they have this discussion, and here's what's crazy, is they begin to talk to each other, and I can't hear a word there's at. And everybody in the are, what do you think he's saying? What do you think he's saying? And all of a sudden, the, the judge is sitting there, all the thing you hear is you hear God the Father sitting there and say, I see, I see. Well, that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Okay, that's clear. He gets done, and when the discussion is finished, God the Father speaks. And he says to me, he says, look, based on the evidence before me, it is clear, Mike, that it, you have committed these sins which is punishable by death. Every single one of them. However, it has come to my attention based on the testimony of your advocate, Jesus Christ, that you have placed your faith in the completed work of my son. Therefore, the penalty for the sins that you have committed have been paid for in full, and my son, through his death on the cross, has released you. You owe no debt. And not only that, but the righteousness of my son has now become imputed to you. Mike, Mike, his work has left you justified in my sight. You are free to go. Amen? And nobody there is going, but he's guilty, or he's innocent, that he's innocent. He, he didn't do those things. No. Yeah, very clearly we did. But it's been paid for. we are now been justified through the completed work of Jesus Christ. When God justifies us, he does two things. He forgives all of your sins, and he declares you righteous in his sight. As the way Paul says it, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are going to be too young to remember this, and I apologize, I hate even saying that, but there was this case, if you're younger, there was this case called the O.J. Simpson trial. And uh, it was actually well-known during the time. There was this man named O.J., his name was Orange Juice, and he uh, wasn't really that, but he was a well-known uh, uh, actor and also a football player. And, um, and he basically um, was believed to have... Uh, we don't know, but it was believed to have murdered his, his wife and her boyfriend. And he begins to run, and he's got this guy, and they're in this white bronco. R- very exciting stuff. And so he finally gets caught, turn himself in. And then there's this trial, and uh, there's a guy by the name of Christopher Darden, I believe. He was the prosecuting attorney and, and uh, may have gotten that name wrong. Should have looked it up. But anyway, uh, he, he gets up, and he thinks that, you know, I'm really going to nail O.J., What I'm going to do is we have the bloody gloves from the crime scene. And what we're going to do is we're going to have him in front of that whole jury. I'm going to bring him down. I'm going to make him put those gloves on. So he gets there, and he comes down. And the whole idea was, if I can show that these gloves fit, guess what? He's going to be condemned to death. They're going to see him for who he is. So he gets down there, and he tries to put these things on. He can't even get them over his knuckles. He's just kind of pulling them over, can't get them over, you know, and trying to pull them down. Then there's a man by the name of Johnny Cochran. Good old Johnny. And Johnny comes up and he basically quotes, he comes up with this quote that many people know today. And he says, if they don't fit, you must acquit. For a person who is not in Christ Jesus, every sin they've ever committed fits them. And they cannot be acquitted because they must pay for that sin. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, the sins that will fit, no longer fit. And God pleasantly, graciously acquits, not because of them, but because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. Look, this morning, and we haven't had it yet, I never know why folks get up out of, a, out of their seat and leave. Sometimes you gotta go to work. Sometimes nature calls, all kinds of things happen. Sometimes, sometimes though, I think people leave quite early because they just don't like what's being said. And and that happens. And it used to really get me down. But it doesn't really get me down all the way anymore because what I realize is if they left and they were offended, at least the gospel was clear enough to offend. The gospel that offends some also gives life to others. What smells like death to some smells like life to others. And so here's what I'm going to say. It doesn't matter who you are. The natural, the gift that God has given you under general grace is a general understanding that there is a God, that you have sinned against that God. All people underneath God's general grace enjoy that. Your sinfulness, however, leads you to believe that you can be made right by your own goodness. No man, no woman, no child including you, can be justified before God through your goodness, only through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.